Right, okay. I'll do the intro. I've got some stuff to plug. And then we'll do Dom, which is me and you. Mm-hmm. Uh, cool. Hello, and welcome back to The Cine Skinny. It's uh, the film podcast from The Skinny Magazine. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Cine Skinny. It's the film podcast from The Skinny Magazine. I didn't sound very sure the first time. But I'm, <laughs> I'm much more convinced this time round. It's me, Peter, with Ellie and Anahit. Uh, Jamie is off on a well-deserved holiday, although he did send me a work email about this podcast one hour ago. He can't be stopped, is the thing. He's too powerful, even even for himself. And so bad at holidays. (laughs) One of those sounded positive. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we're back on the ones and twos at EHFM in Summer Hall. Let's all give EHFM a big old pat on the back because they're five years old Woo, this month. Yay. Happy birthday. The, the best radio station. It's five years old. <laughs> I mean, that's just that's the thing I've just started saying, like, it's the best radio station. It is the best. The like, best. I genuinely legit think Name that. a better one. Name yeah. a single Heart, better one. <laughs> capital. Don't make me laugh. <laughs> and, then, and then when they can't do that, Ellie, they just start saying numbers at you. They're like, one, two, three. Make shit up. <laughs> anyway. EHFM, five years old, uh, so congrats and many happy returns to everyone at the station. By the time this comes out, our very brief kind of like potted history of the station's first half decade will be on our website. We did it for like the email newsletter. Uh, It was an email and now it isn't. So that's on the website. (laughs) But on today's podcast, uh, meta films, musical films, things of this nature uh, with the three of us. A few things to plug before we start. The next round of movie screenings that we're doing, we're screening There's Nothing Out There, which is a 1991 horror comedy about a group of teens who go on a camping trip and then their mega film nerd pal tries to save the day. It's been described by, I believe by Jamie, as a cheese fest. (laughs) So it should be good fun. That's at CCA in Summer Hall on the 3rd and the 4th. You can get tickets on the website and all the usual places. And one of the reasons actually that Jamie is off is because he's taking a well-deserved break after the Independent Cinema Guide thing that we do with Film Hub Scotland is back you can get it in various uh, indie cinemas and place indie cinema adjacent places across scotland 32 pages edited by the big man himself uh it's got a two-for-one ticket deal anna heat wrote some of it i did me and ellie did some of the proofreading you did a you're real welcome team effort. <laughs> so wait, did, was it full of time no no <laughs> I did actually spell because um, I did the preview for Poor Things, uh, which is on the cover, baby. Um, and I did spell Alistair Gray's name wrong. So that's okay. <laughs> that was a fair comment to make, actually. If you see Jamie, don't let him know. <laughs> um, also, if you see Jamie. No, see- but you guys caught it in proofing. Oh, excellent. So it's okay. That's my point. I, was, I, I partly put that in to be like, yes, you can see the division around here. <laughs> Jamie, Jamie edits and lords over it. Anna Heat does the fun bit. And, and me and Ellie are in the mines. Shoveling, yes. shoveling the commas. They're doing it in a way more pointedly way than I expected yeah. to when that came out. Ellie has fully come over to the dark side. I'd <laughs> love to see it. Cool. So that's all stuff that we're working on just now uh, or that you can find out and about. But for now, the recorder's been on for four minutes. Let's podcast. Let's podcast. Um, two films to review this week. The first one is A Cat Called Dom, a film that we've talked about a little bit on the podcast. We had one of the co-directors, Will Anderson, on a live episode that we did last year. So this is a debut feature by Will and Ainsley Henderson, which won the Powell and Pressburger Award at the Edinburgh Film Festival last year. It is a kind of multi-layered meta documentary that centers around Will, his mother, and her cancer diagnosis, 
as Will tries to basically work through it all in a very literal sense, he is visited by the titular cat with the titular title. That's how titular works. Um, it's the titular do- role. <laughs> Apparently, I'm hearing from my left, it's the titular role. Um, so Dom is this cat who lives on Will's laptop and sees the world in a way that only a small animated cat can. Uh, it's a very kind of like small budget um, and very kind of feels quite like homespun in a very good way film. But Ellie, he said in classic leading question fashion, it's very inventive, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's very like, uh, it's, it's very deliberate. It deliberates over itself. Everything is incredibly like tightly controlled. And even though it presents this very um, natural documentarian behind the scenes sort of casual vibe, we learn more and more that it is in fact heavily scripted and this is a recreation of events. Um, and yet when they deliver the line, um, it felt wrong. I don't know why it felt wrong. It was just supposed to be a funny film about cancer. Like they do that with in a seeming complete lack of awareness and therefore becoming my favorite line of the film. But um, like I say, it's, it's, it's very diagnostic, right? It's diagnostic about animation, about filmmaking itself. It's a film about making a film. They admit to the footage being recreations uh, and then we have their reactions to the footage they just shot, but their reactions to the recreations may also be scripted. Um, the obstacles of working on a film are like commitment of time, having to go to Japan for an animation conference, having to get work done. And there's no doubt that any of these animations themselves, many of which just completely share the same voice as their creators, are kind of a microcosm of their dynamic. They're, you know, one of them wants to always hone down on the really like emotional tragic parts of the script and the other one wants to diffuse things with a joke but it's also diagnostic of grief and it investigates gallows humor and why we make light of dark things and how we try and run from our feelings you know i I think that that sort of stoic uh, resistance to difficult topics feels very linked to scottish identity and i was Connecting with it quite hard. I mean, I'll always root for the whimsical wee Scottish mum. You know, I have one. <laughs> she She's great. And, You've and got to go with what you know sometimes. Unlike in this film, nothing bad is ever going to happen to her ever. Um, forever and ever and ever. So, um, Aww, that's so, nice. <laughs> so clearly I learned nothing from, from the thesis of this film. But it is, you know, it, it's got great scope. It's got great introspection. And it manages to be very funny throughout. Like Jamie was saying to Will when they spoke last year, it's a film that's about kind of personal and professional failure, but how you kind of approach it and how you can move forwards. Uh, I think it's really inventive, it's very kind of like formally interesting. There's all these different layers to the film, different uh, types of footage, whether it's like archive stuff, stuff shot on someone's phone, stuff that's been like professionally shot. They'll do really interesting things, Will and Ainsley, with like the kind of boundaries of the screen, where like the screen will change shape depending on what kind of level of the film we're working on. Uh, but beyond all that, it's just a very, very genuine and incredibly relatable look at how certain people of a certain age, cough, men in their thirties, cough, cough, uh, do or don't manage to deal with things that have happened to them or things that have happened to the people that they love and care about, and how you kind of approach that sense that you may have like let people down or not fully um, reckoned with things that are happening to you. And the film becomes about that process of, you know, understanding that you've maybe not dealt with something in a particularly great way, but trying to then sort of make up for it. 
and not kind of wallowing in things going wrong. Um, so yeah, really formally interesting, really inventive, a real kind of heart to it. And yeah, just really strong on the kind of things you were saying earlier, but the idea of like artifice and like construction in works of art and like how all films are just like constructed pieces. So what does that mean for the story? What does that mean for the subjects of the story? And what does that mean when, particularly in like documentary or documentary type films, you're often trying to tell a story while it's still ongoing, which then impacts on the next bit of the story. And then when you're very close to the subject, that obviously impacts on how all these things sort of tie together. So in the space of just under an hour, it covers a lot of ground. Yeah, I mean, it, th that's the thing is like, it, it's really packed with all these different sentiments and we're talking about it now and it feels heavy. Like it feels like such a heavy film. Well, it is a heavy film, but it doesn't feel like a heavy film is what I'm saying. Like it actually feels like a really casual, it's really watchable. It's It, it feels quite fun. I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if it's the intervention of these little cartoon animals that themselves are quite naff, you know? They're not outrageously, like, gut-bustingly hilarious or anything like that, but they're in fact quite cheeky. There's a, the, the, the titular cat called Dom. Uh, the whole time is just, like, trying to make poetry out of like, Google searches, predictive texts and stuff like that. And he's really bad at it. But, like, <clears throat> that's sort of what makes it I don't know. I think I think that that that's the face of the film that is really kind of taking it down a notch. Like we we talk about this dichotomy between the directors about wanting to go sadder and and more morose and then wanting to go like funnier. And I think that that's the thing is these little animated segments are kind of like they they don't neatly fall into either camp actually. They're they're they've just sort of got a strong personality of their own. And they they really well populate the film with breathable moments, so you don't even realize how sort of insidious these really really heavy themes are that are creeping up on you until long after you've watched the film and it's still rattling around inside your head. Yeah, I mean it's a really great to manage to do all of this in just under an hour is really it's a really impressive film and like Will and Ainsley's like short form stuff has always been like really like say kind of mixture of like pathos and just like people running around saying and doing silly things but like yeah this film is a really exciting and interesting and yeah quite emotionally charged bit of work it's lovely Anna Heat you haven't seen it have you I haven't would no. you go and see it having heard this description yeah yeah I did really want to see it I just didn't have time last night um but yeah, I've seen like some of that. We were talking about it yesterday, I think, because they are residents, or they at least were residents at Summerhall. I went to like an event where they showed some of their short animations, like Will and Ainsley's, and they were like really sweet and funny and weird. Um, and I really liked them. So yeah, yes, I think people should go see this. Well, the good news for those people and yourself is that there's plenty <laughs> of opportunities actually to see it because for being quite a small film and quite a kind of like, in a sense, like esoteric film, it's actually getting a pretty good release, uh, certainly all across Scotland. So it's on at the GFT this Saturday coming, the 23rd of September at 1.45 as part of Glasgow Youth Film Festival. It's then on at the Cameo on Sunday at like quarter past five. It's then on at the DCA on Saturday the 30th at 6 p.m. And it's also on at Eden Court in Inverness. Um, I believe the same weekend, like the weekend of the 29th and 30th. Um, all the screenings have either a live or recorded Q&A with Will and Ainsley. So 
you get a bit of background on the film. And it also takes it up to the standard length of a trip to the cinema, which, as we all know, is anywhere between an hour and 20 and four hours. <laughs> so, so, yeah, um, A Cat Called Dom, really exciting, really inventive bit of filmmaking. And I would heartily recommend that people go and check it out. Support Scottish cinema, support small cats that live on people's laptops. <laughs> from one kind of meta film that is quite kind of formally inventive and likes messing with the set dressing to another completely different, but in some ways, slightly thematically similar film? Formally similar. It's not that similar, but it kind of works. <laughs> uh, so Rotting in the Sun is a new film from Sebastian Silva, who made The Magic Cactus, is it called, with uh, Michael Cera? He's worked a couple yeah, of times with yeah, Michael yeah. Sarah, Chilean director. Uh, Sebastian and Jordan Firstman, who is like a kind of Instagram influencer, content creator, both play versions of themselves uh, who meet on this nudist beach uh, while Sebastian is on holiday. And amid their kind of like frolicking and squabbling uh, around like the beaches and the clubs, there's lots of drugging, lots of sex. Uh, and lots of unexpected weird twists and turns in a film that starts off as one thing and I don't consider this to be a spoiler given how early in the film it is the film then becomes something different from what yeah. it initially appears friends it's a lot Anna Heat is it worth it? Yeah I thought this was very fun if not like um, like excellent piece of cinema <laughs> If that makes sense. Like, I thought it was really, I admired how ambitious it was. I'm not sure it always comes together, but it is a really fucking good time in as much as it tries. Like you say, it is like a film of two halves. Like that first half is this very like, kind of like nihilistic, very, very queer, very horny, sort of like meta thing where like Sebastian Silva is playing a version of himself. I'm so curious what kind of version of himself, because he is a dickhead <laughs> there's like within five minutes he's like hit his dog um he's constantly like just sitting in the park like researching ways to kill himself um which does not make him dickhead but like yeah he's like aggressively hitting his dog he's being like mean to like the woman that like lives in his house um jesus christ <laughs> the woman who like works in his house his housekeeper his housekeeper sorry <laughs> my brain is like really <laughs> woman lives in his house it's it's <laughs> It's also such like a, it's such a kind of tawdry, horrible checklist to have to keep bouncing back to. It's like, right, okay, so we've covered the fact he hits his dog, he's mean to his housekeeper. He's Rule mean, of threes, come yeah. on, there's gotta be one more. So like, he's like a horrible person, but then he's also like clearly just like not doing well. He's like constantly Googling like these increasingly like darkly funny ways to like commit suicide and like all of the this The man stuff. is pounding cat, like it's going so out of, like it's going out of date. And so he ends up like going, one of his friends is like, you were so fucking depressed, go on this fucking holiday to this like beach resort or whatever. And that first like half hour where he goes, he meets Jordan Firstman, he like almost drowns trying to rescue Jordan Firstman from the sea. Kind of reminded me of, I don't know if you saw that romantic comedy that came out last year, Fire Island, which is like very cute. Like, I have not seen it, but I know the one you mean. You know the vibe. So like that first like half hour, 45 minutes is like Fire Island for the gays who do cat instead of tequila. Like that is the energy that's giving. And it is really fun. And then there is like you say, this kind of shift. I don't want to say what happens, but then it becomes a lot more 
almost like genre cinema and the shift there's like a shift in like who maybe like protagonists and antagonists are and that is really interesting but I don't think the first like the halves of the film ever entirely coalesce and I think the whole of the second half I kind of missed how quickly we abandoned the first half of it but it's not that the second half was bad it just felt like such an abrupt tonal shift that it didn't feel like we'd really like wrapped it up um, but having said that, it is all incredibly, incredibly funny. Um, I had never heard of Jordan Firstman because I'm not on like TikTok because I am too old to learn a new social media app. Like I don't have time, I don't have the energy, I don't have the mental health. Um, so I had never heard of this man, um, but he is really funny, like really, really funny. Um, and I think to kind of start, if I think of like the films that other influences have been, the one that's coming to mind is Addison Rae who was in that really shit version like the gender swap, she's all that on Netflix. And if these are like the different levels of like films <laughs> that influences are in, like I really think Jordan Firstman has won. So like good for him. There's like this very kind of funny bit where he's like trying to like investigate something that has happened, but he's in Mexico and he doesn't fucking speak Spanish. So he's constantly like having these really urgent conversations, but he's having to like speak it into his phone that then translates it. And then it'll translate it back into English and the English is nowhere near what the <laughs> Spanish should be. He is like Hercule Poirot, yeah. <laughs> but if Poirot wore more hoodies and had to get his phone to translate every single word yeah. out of everyone else's <laughs> mouth. It's when he rolls up and starts being like, hang on a minute, you said that you'd never recognized this guy before. And then it's like, okay, now phone, <laughs> go. <laughs> and it is just very funny. It is in a way like a kind of study into like incompetence, which is like really fun. Like you have all of these people, like this kind of famous filmmaker, this like influencer, all of these people that supposedly have like power and creativity and they're all just... Like not a single person knows how to like live their life in any like reasonable way. Um, and I think that it's a, quite a funny commentary if not like an entirely fresh take on sort of like modern creativity and the kind of people that work within it. So yeah, I had a super fun time. As with so many things, it would have been better if it were honest at like at a cinema. Like I probably would have enjoyed it I think I gave it like three and a half stars on Letterboxd. Potentially if I'd been in a cinema, actually it would have been a four stars because I wouldn't have like had to check my phone or like think about something else. Um, and I feel that that is just like my recurring bit on this podcast at the moment. It's just to be like, things would be better if we weren't just like distracted and watching them at home. But having said that, I think it is only streaming on movie, right? Yes, there were some... There are. There's definitely a way that people could put it on in the cinema because they had some limited screenings before right. it came on movie. So it is possible technically for it to be on in the cinema. I had a look and couldn't see any upcoming screenings. But programmers of cinemas, <laughs> this is you're on notice from Anahi <laughs> to make this happen. Just watch. We just want to watch things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely would recommend it. It was a fun time. Yeah, I think that thing about the kind of handbrake tonal shift in the film. It's one of the most impressive versions of that kind of thing that I've seen in a long time because it, it's so committed to the change and the moment that there is a moment after which you are almost literally watching a different film Yeah, but I think you're right that there is actually a thing of like but I like the old film it's like yeah. the old film's gone that old <laughs> film's gone we're here now we're not you join in media res with Jordan Firstman trying to conduct an investigation when he knows no none of the people involved and doesn't speak the language. Yeah, I think that like as much as it's a film of two halves that can't really reconcile, it's a film with 
your primary characters who, you know, the misanthropic, suicidal, ketamine-addicted artist, and then this, like, very extravagant, albeit vapid, social media influencer have these clashing philosophies and you expect it to become something that it doesn't. But what's fascinating about the big tonal shift is how their worldviews continue to be challenged even after they can't have their little, like, whatever romance movie this was going to be. Um, the, that's what I really enjoyed about this film, is seeing the very interesting configuration of ideas changing, even though, in theory, this little dalliance is over. Um, but the problem with this second half of the film is that th then we go on to our, like, we spend a lot more time with our secondary characters who I just didn't feel as interested in. Mm. Or rather, like, the film struggled to explain to me the real difference, the real individuality of these secondary characters. The slightly incompetent but ultimately well-meaning housekeeper and the, you know, dickhead landlord who's renovating the flat both kind of, like, get stuck in this, like, genre thriller and, and you know, kind of go, to, like, you know, try and cover up their dark secrets and, and get caught up in a web of lies. And it's not particularly original. And at the same time, it's kind of just putting them in the exact same boat where they're just, you know, despite the fact that they're supposedly diametrically opposed characters, they are just doing the same thing. And, I like, yeah, I just didn't really, like, get what I was supposed to get out of this. We've watched a ton of films of this sort of thing, and it doesn't really wind up amounting to much. So it is a mixed bag in that regard. I wish that, like, I don't, I don't know, like, I understand why the tonal shift had to happen, because what I was most interested in was how these main characters arc following that tonal shift but we just mm -hmm. don't spend as much time with them so it's not as fun um however i did really like the sort of comedic element to it it sort of like has this free-flowing camera style where the camera operator is virtually the comedic character of the film <laughs> like there's a point where sebastian is like no this dog is a he look and the camera operator just walks right up into that dog's crotch and gets like <laughs> a real long shot and then that habit doesn't stop when sebastian goes to the nude beach so it's no, like oh, there's so many dicks. Yeah, so yeah. it's just Oof. like against this like real battle of philosophies of like everything's shit and we should all kill ourselves and you can't hurt me because I'm a happy clown. There's also just this wayward cameraman who's just trying to get all the dicks he can see, and it really like creates this this very fun dissonance where you're taking in a lot of information but also like taking in a lot of dicks. Yeah, I was surprised at what they got away with, to be honest, because it's not just the dicks, it's like really explicit sex. I read uh, somewhere that uh, Sebastian Silva wanted to get Michael Cera for this film as well, but <laughs> Michael Cera said no because of the sexually explicit content, really? to which I say, coward. <laughs> No, the second part, someone else's, the, the film programmers are joining Michael Cera on the, in the blast zone on this episode of the Sin is Gay podcast. It's because he's in Barbie now. He can't be getting away with that kind of shit. Yeah. I, mean, I would love to see the Alan character from yeah. Barbie <laughs> on the beach in, uh, in Rotting in the Sun. Mental note. Pitch that to Sebastian Silva. Um, I also really like, I know that, I feel like ever since I said that the guy from A Fire was insufficiently narcissistic, I'm getting what I wanted mm -hmm. because <laughs> Jordan, first man by name, first man by nature, and so on and so forth, just rolls onto the scene in the most overblown, I'm going to make this about myself way and it's absolutely delightful. One of the first interactions that Jordan and Sebastian have 
is uh, Sebastian at a party that Jordan is kind of co-hosting, doing a whole load of drugs, and then Jordan just videos him and straight away sticks it on his Instagram. And when Sebastian's like, man, what are you doing? You can't do that. Jordan just goes, that's what I do. <laughs> it's like, he's right. It is what he do. Yeah. like it's but Despite the fact that these, both of these characters are massive fucking headaches, right? They they are like you know and you know supposedly Sebastian does not give a shit about anyone and thinks we should all die and yet as you said in the synopses earlier on he like tries to save this guy from drowning before he even understands who he is yeah. and even though uh, Jordan is completely like self obsessed and, and narcissistic or whatever and has to make everything about himself he's the only one who seems to give a shit about like the mystery at the heart of the film he's yeah. the only one that yeah. seems interested in like the well being of the person who's in question. Hmm. You know, so that's romance, baby. Yeah, like again, like that's their dynamic is the most interesting because they kind of violate everything they supposedly are, right? Yeah. Yeah. I had a really good joke for the Alan bit, but then I didn't say it quick enough. Okay, go. <laughs> I was going to say because his job is beach. Because no, Ken's job of, is beach. No, because there are <laughs> loads of jobs on the beach. Nice. <laughs> Thank I you. see. <laughs> okay, ah, I'm his, out. His, <laughs> ah, yeah, no, his job, no, no, no. His job is his job yeah. is beach. You know what? <laughs> the thing is, that's probably clean enough that we can post it on socials <laughs> to promote this episode. <laughs> um, much like this conversation, rotting in the sun is quite hectic, quite noisy, and quite chaotic. But it is a good, yeah. It's like it's not a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a good fun roller coaster ride of a film i've seen it compared to uncut gems uh i kind of i don't think that that's like a super apt comparison but i think it's maybe like a good way in for people to think about mm. if you imagine a cross between fire island and uncut gems yeah, I mean, there we go. the cursed the, the cursed <laughs> cross point of those two i think the comment you read out to me was uncut gems for people on grinder <laughs> it was uncut, it was uncut gems for suicidal suicidal grinder bros so <laughs> that is the top i can't believe currently the top letterbox review for this film should let you know everything you need to know about rotting in the sun which like i say there's not any UK cinema screenings lined up anytime soon, but I know that it is available for those in the future. Maybe we'll get Jamie to put it on for the Cine Skinny Film Club. Maybe, although I still have a film I want to put on, and okay. Jamie keeps not asking me. Well, we can discuss that <laughs> off mic. But uh, <laughs> Jamie will hear this episode when it comes out. Yeah. Jamie will receive an email. But yeah, but the reason that I say that is because it is available now to stream via Mubi. Yes. So that's why it might work. This feels a bit inside baseball for all the listeners. Let's move on to something else. <laughs> and now, a bit of a chat about musical films, uh, concert films, musicals of this nature. Basically, I am a massive Talking Heads fan, and Stop Making Sense, arguably the greatest concert film ever made, is getting a 40th-ish anniversary. It's one of these anniversaries where, like, I don't think it's actually the 40th anniversary, but someone has acquired the rights to the film and therefore it's coming back out in cinemas. So A24 have done a big kind of 4K restoration of Stop Making Sense, the Jonathan Demme document of Talking Heads at their peak in the early 1980s, and it's getting an IMAX re-release starting from this weekend. So there are screenings at the big IMAX screen in, in Edinburgh. 
at Cineworld. The big IMAX at the Edinburgh Cineworld. I don't know why I'm tripping over my words so much today. I think I've been, like, bumped my head or something. But anyway, um, so Stop Making Sense is getting re-released. It's an incredible film and a brilliant example of concert films generally. So I would heartily recommend it to everyone. Uh, but there's probably a good there, right? You're doing great. I am doing great. Start making sense. <laughs> Sorry. I'm gonna have to leave That's that in shit. now. I'm gonna have to leave that in now. Um, so yeah, but it's basically a good excuse to talk about some other films, concert films, films with lots of music in them, and like good examples of this kind of thing of putting music on the big screen. Ellie, help um, me, please do more of this now, podcast. The, what makes Stop Making Sense the greatest concert film of all time is beautiful cinematography. It's got a very unique choreography behind it. Uh, like everything has this sheen of professionalism but what if i told you that there was a concert film that had none of that i would say ellie that sounds like the perfect basis for three to five minutes of podcasting (laughs) and that please continue is it good no is it enjoyable depends this is awesome i fucking filmed that the concert film of the beastie boys 2006 performance at madison square gardens wherein the beastie boys distributed 50 camcorders to random fans and had them all shoot the footage of the film um (laughs) now one of the interesting things about the beastie boys is that when you look at actual like filmed concerts one of the best two of the best examples actually of the beastie boys on film come from gigs in scotland so there is a, it was when they played at Tea in the Park on one of the really muddy years. There's footage of them doing Intergalactic in the big like boiler suits. And it's shot from an angle where you can see that the entire crowd is like pogoing perfectly in unison <laughs> and probably about to destroy a small part of Kinross. But there was also a filmed version for MTV of one of the, I can't remember what tour it was, but they were playing at the SECC. And it was like kind of in the round and they had like a circular stage in the middle of like everyone round about and it's all shot in black and white and it looks amazing and it's very similar to kind of stop making sense very kind of like active and like vibrant and lots of like moving parts and moving pieces so that's what the beastie boys could look like on screen ellie we're up to a minute 45 of this bit of podcasting <laughs> let's roll well um you might think that given that that only the most hardcore of uh beastie heads um would want to watch i think beastie heads is probably as good as you're gonna get yeah (laughs) would want to watch an hour and a half of the most grainy and shaky possible footage of of the uh the boys comma beastie um (laughs) they're skipping around the stage in green tracksuits but like and this is like a very experimental form of concert film right and weirdly it sort of works like hip-hop is all about remixes about heavily editing distinct tracks stitching together something that's very fast very frenetic and the rapid cuts between these really shaky terrible angles can both obfuscate the very amateurish camera work of these random attendees but it also matches the high speed tempo of so what you watch you watch you want um and it gives the uh, Beastie Boys ident- like it gives a profile of their identity like sometimes in a way that Stop Making Sense didn't do for Talking Heads the fans usually turn the cameras back on themselves or the crowds around them and you get to see people's faces you get to see people of all ages and backgrounds rapping along having a good time supposedly if you look closely you can see a verified young Donald Glover in the crowd as well as a slightly less young Ben Stiller um, 
And one highlight comes from a cameraman who takes his recording into the garden toilets for the most intimate bathroom break of all time. But like the muted sound of the music is is playing through the wall and like then interspliced with close up shots of the performance. There's a point where um, someone is just uh, like, you know, reaching forward with their like thumb and forefinger in front of the lens of the camera, pretending to like squish ad rock between the, in like that very juvenile way. And it's like, that's a perspective trick. You've composed a shot, you're learning. Now all you need to do is stop fucking jumping up and down while you're trying to film. Like- I was it, gonna say, this film sounds like it would give me emotions. It is uh, hard to watch, question mark, <laughs> at least for an hour and a half. Like it's a total gimmick, but it is like fascinating for its novelty. Cause remember this is 2006. It's uh, the year after YouTube became a thing, so it's still not even really a thing, but the Beastie Boys have predicted that every single concert for the next 20 years from this point would be filmed to some extent in this way. And I think it's probably going to be less interesting to Beastie Boys, fan, uh, Beastie Boys fans, but more interesting to people who want to see a very unique concert film. And like I say, it's kind of the anti-stop making sense. But I mean, if you have some interest, I'm like a casual listener of the BBs. So if you have like some interest, I don't know, I was getting kind of swept up in it. I was enjoying it, but it's also just really weird and dumb. And I made it my personal mission to find the least stop making sense concert film I possibly could. You know what? That's how you podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that thing of it being almost like a kind of accidental blueprint for what would come with smartphones. And I think one of the things about people documenting events now is and we were talking about this about a completely unrelated topic on the way to the studio you document so much and so much of it just sits on your phone mm. or on your google drive or on your laptop and never sees the light of day so to have a project that is specifically designed to be like go out and irritate everyone around you with this camcorder but i want that footage that's gold. Supposedly, like, everyone, I don't know how it worked. Everyone had to, like, turn their camcorders back in at the end, and it's like, how did no one just nick them? Like, maybe yeah. they did, but maybe that idea that, like, you could be part of a film. I the, think if it were me, I would give it back. The name of the film is Awesome I Fucking Filmed That, or Awesome yeah. I Fucking Shot That. Um, and, like, it's because at the very at the very beginning, like there's obviously this tech guy who's t awesome. I fucking shot that. I just looked it up. The, there's like a tech guy who's talking to these 50 volunteers and is like, you are going to look back on this and say, awesome. I fucking shot that. So classic example of Leonardo DiCaprio meme points at screen when they <laughs> say the name of the film. We all love it. Um, Anahi, do you have anything to add to this conversation? So. My Sorry, that one. sounded more pointed. <laughs> no, it's very justifiably pointed because we, uh, I have, we discussed about how I don't really watch concert films. So I want to contextualize the thing I'm going to say and make my excuses by saying I have seen, I think, three concert films. Um, if you include Pop Star Never Stop Never Stopping, which we have discussed very recently on this podcast, um, I have seen Summer of Soul, which we have also discussed on this podcast and American Utopia, um, which is the other David Byrne Talking Heads one that showed at LFF in 2020, which I did really like, but I can't remember a single thing about, so I can't talk about it over here. Um, so I am gonna talk about <laughs> Bo Burnham's Inside. <laughs> and there it is. Mostly because you put me in this position. <laughs> It's the one of his specials that isn't in concert. But that's what makes it interesting, I think, right? <laughs> Here we sure. go. And also right. I haven't seen the others because I thought they were quite boring. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I guess like I was thinking about, well, what does make a concert film, right? And it is that idea of live performance. And so kind of what you're talking about, like that the fans becoming a part of like documenting that live performance. I suppose what I find interesting about it is when we start to like blur the traditional lines of that. And I think that's what pop star Never Stop Never Stopping does as well. It kind of starts to question like, what is that contract that we have between like audience and performer? That idea that like they are on stage, they're giving this concert. It is being recorded for posterity and it's being like kind of canonized within like the kind of music, whatever. Um, and I think what is really interesting about Bo Burnham's Inside is that it is pretty much like a musical like an almost entirely sung through musical like there are like little interstitial bits of dialogue but most of it is music um but it is it I, neither has an audience but it is also entirely structured around the idea of who is going to be watching it and who is he performing to so that idea that like even if you're performing to an empty room in the age of the internet there is no such thing as an empty room and obviously with Bo Burnham especially at that time there was a lot of what he was grappling with was like how do you kind of navigate that line between like your private life and your public life when your entire public life has been about not having a private life um and so I think it's like really really clever um he does like really yeah like the songs are really like funny they're like really well written they're really catchy (laughs) I will say Uh, like they're actually really good music um but I think that idea of yeah what is like, is it a concert film? Is it a film? Is it a comedy show? Like how how much of like how we determine what these genres are depend on someone who is there viewing something and someone who is there viewing something determining what it is. And I think it's really interesting how it like muddles those categories. Um, also, I can't stress it enough, haven't seen another one. So that's all you get. Well, I mean like it's the, it's like it's like the lockdown concert yeah. film really. Yeah, because exactly. like it is him using like these, like this huge uh, vast span of like technical equipment yep. to create a concert when it could not be created. So there's, I mean, you know, the bit uh, is it all eyes on me where mm-hmm. he has like amplified his voice yeah. and sort of like, like recorded a, a faint version of himself slowly moving as if it's a huge screen that's slightly out of sync mm-hmm. with the performer. And there's also a song where it's like this campfire style, him with a guitar acoustic so it's like he's doing every kind of concert film yeah. and just editing in the atmosphere through exactly. sort of technical masterwork it's yeah like, and how much of that is then like artificial even within any old concert film right like i think the most interesting parts of that film are the bits where you see like a small moment where he's like moving the camera and he's like kind of adjusting it slightly or he's like knocked over a piece of equipment. And you do think like to make this thing, he had to just be like in his room acting like a lunatic Mm -hmm. for like a year. And how much of even like a, like any sort of like musical or any kind of performance really, if we start looking at like the edges of it and the things that happen immediately backstage or immediately as you're in the wings or the small conversations that they have with each other, how much does that start to break that artifice and that contract between like performer and audience where you are just kind of both like agreeing to this version, like this fake version of something that's happening where it's like pristine and it's like Which also entirely performed. Stop making sense doesn't acknowledge the audience at any mm-hmm. point, I think. That's what I noticed about the Beastie yeah. Boys one is that in Stop Making Sense, I, as far as I remember, we don't ever even see the you audience. You see them right at the very end. 
But one of the interesting things about Stop Making Sense that kind of brings this conversation full circle within itself, but also within the wider circle of this episode of the Cine Skinny podcast, <laughs> is that it is lauded as the best concert film ever. It was filmed over four nights. Mm-hmm. It's four performances that have been constructed into one whole. And also there's like different versions of the film because some of them have like, there's like a longer cut that has two extra songs in it. Yeah. yeah. So like, so there is this thing of, yeah, like all of, all of these kind of like all of these films uh brackets concert or general are just are they are constructed they don't occur naturally and they're all constructed for various reasons Mm. to do various different things so you present an image of like the absolute perfect platonic ideal of what a gig should be but it's actually four gigs that you got the director of the silence of the lambs to (laughs) to film and then sort of comp together into one incredibly convincing example of them all being one thing you wanted to make a concert film but there was no crowd to watch it with so you used a bunch of like editing techniques and probably shot it over like multiple different days and then put mm-hmm. all the takes together to make them make sense you wanted to take 50 people and give them all camcorders and get them all to make your film for you but then you're still the one like you're still the director is still ultimately making decisions you'd be like man i shot that it's like yep not using it though yeah not a fan. i wonder how like widespread a practice that is i'm looking about the most concert films or musical theater pro shots mm-hmm. probably if i mean they've set the equipment up and so, like, the most famous example I can think of is Beyonce's Homecoming, where it was her two Coachella performances, and they wore different colors in each one. And so in the documentary, sometimes they're... And because, like, her and her dancers are so seamless, the movement would be exactly the same. They would be hitting the same, like, blocking in the air almost, but then they would go from pink to yellow, and it looked like like CGI or something, but it was just that they had filmed it on two different nights and it was like spliced together. Um, But yeah, I think that's exactly it, right? Is we kind of, so much of the concept film is this idea of like, oh, it recreates that experience, but can anything really recreate that experience? And it's something that I have noticed generally just at gigs, like when I saw Boy Genius at Connect at the end of August, when they did the last song from their new album, um, Phoebe Bridges was like, like, you know, I know you all have like your phones out or whatever, but can you please just put them away for this one song? Like, it's a really vulnerable song. And I just, I want us all to be like in this moment. Um, and I have like noticed people doing that. And also just within the crowd, there being a general, like there are a couple of people in front of us that had their phones out for like other songs. And the people behind us kept like being like, just put your fucking phones away. Like, you know. If I'm having a good time, I forget my phone exists. Yeah, which is like... ideal, right? But I do think that kind of the relationship that we have with documenting concerts is slowly starting to shift as we reach the kind of like what is it called the uh like critical mass of how much we're using technology Mm -hmm. it's almost like we've got to a point where we've used it so much that it's starting to fail in of itself i also like yeah i'm i'm glad for uh phoebe uh, phoebe to point that out because i think since lockdown i don't know if this is just me your crowds are so much fucking worse like yeah. with phones and stuff like that not even just with concerts with theater with mm-hmm. plays i've been at plays people have like ringtones going off people have got yeah. their brightness up like high as possible and and they're encouraged to have them out at applause which i have never seen before but now i keep seeing like in various kind of um like actors whatever that are like theater people there is allowed for the audience to kind of be filming like the bows and the applause and like bits like that um which i just find so fucking bizarre i also find that is a very strange thing to do because it's saying 
video the best moment that I can keep for posterity, but make sure that you don't take this as any kind of indication that you can just do it whenever you like. Yeah. I'm sure mm -hmm. people will work that out. And it's never happened in the past that people have been given an inch and taken more than an inch. <laughs> That's why the phrase is, give them an inch, they'll take the inch and be happy with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Famously. Fam famously, people are very reasonable. <laughs> don't take more than they should um but yeah so stop making sense uh, is in imax cinemas from this friday uh inside is on netflix isn't it yeah inside is on netflix and awesome i fucking shot that is available oh good luck um i think again it's not a particularly glossy film so i'm not super sure that the people at the record company want it widely distributed i think i think it did can, like, come out you can probably, rent it on yeah. youtube or Maybe Apple TV or something like that? Yeah, it'll be one of these ones where it's not widely available, but you'll be able to find it if you want. And that um, full film of the Beastie Boys in Glasgow in 1999, it turns out, there's a blast from the past, um, is available on YouTube. So if you just want to see them do sabotage uh, dressed as kind of bank managers, then you're sorted. <laughs> is it better than 144p? I mean, nothing's better than 144p. That's how God <laughs> intended for films to be watched. <laughs> And on that, I think we're probably done for today. Yeah. I think that went pretty well. That did. So good job, Anahit. <laughs> you too, Peter. Five stars, Ellie. Thank you. Uh, we will be back in two weeks' time. Presumably, Jamie will be back. He can't stay away for long. He, oh, he's he on his way now. <laughs> is, is he literally yeah. on his way now? He's 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 cro he's crossing over in Edinburgh right now <laughs> as we speak. <laughs> I can't even tell if you're when serious. <laughs> As soon as as soon as he sent you that email, you started running like Terminator. <laughs> I've got the film on a pen drive. I can be there in the hour. <laughs> okay, we will be back in two weeks' time. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.